0: Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 18, and I've titled this message, The Believer's Responsibility. Let's open in prayer. Father, we we need you. We need you every hour. But we know that there are times that we just run ahead of you. There's times we run off and don't even stop and talk acknowledge you and first we ask for forgiveness we want nothing to hinder that relationship with you Lord we want to honor you we thank you that you have began that work in us and you'll finish that work and we want to learn to surrender to you in every area so Lord speak to us stir us up that we would follow you with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, look at your text with me. In verse 6, let us begin together. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition which you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined manner, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Not such persons that, that we command or exhort, Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter. Take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. I'd like to read from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 13, too. On the lips of the discerning, wisdom is found. But a rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding. Wise men store up knowledge, but the mouth of the foolish rune is at their hand. This morning we're going to be talking about really the believer's responsibility there's a time that that what is called disfellowship or someone needs to be set aside in the fellowship because of their their behavior their misrepresentation of of really who god is and what it means to to be a christian and there's none of us here that i believe that would like to just confront people it's hard it's difficult uh, we just want to be patient and loving and just pray they will come to their senses but within the body of Christ here God says judgment must start here begins with me and my own life and your own life and there's a passage that says a little leaven leavens the lump a, a little sin in the camp affects all of us it affects our our witness in this community that sin will lead to another sin that will affect and inoculate others in this body if we just allow it to go on. Now there's some fellowships that they focus upon uh, disfellowship. They're, they're always looking for something wrong. You, you go into church and they're measuring how high the dress of a woman is and, and they're looking for something wrong and, and that's never what we're called to do. In fact, it's just the opposite of that in that sense. We're to take the log out of our eye before we take the speck out of someone else's eye. Before any disfellowship ever occurs, there, there needs to begin a check in my own heart. Why is it I want to fellowship a person, set a, a person aside? One of the examples is in 1 Corinthians and where a young man had his father's wife. And Paul said he'd commit him to Satan. He'd turned him over to Satan. That in the end, that he would come to a census. That he too would be shamed. He would suffer the consequence of being outside that fellowship of that family. In the end, when you read through First and Second Corinthians, you see that they did. They did set him apart. They did honor Paul's request. And then he needed to be restored. But but they were so into it at that point that Paul had to exhort, man, you need to restore this brother. This fellowship is never supposed to be something that we enjoy. That's what we call tough love sometimes. We have to deal with a, a person, a child, because we love them because we want the best for them. And it's really that attitude that is so important. Look with me in our text in verse 6. It says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition which you've received from us. Now, Paul grabs our attention very quickly Uh, by using this language, we command you, he's alerting the listeners by calling attention to the brothers and sisters. Hey, look, I'm commanding you, brothers and sisters. And imagine everyone there, their ears perked up, they looked intently. what is he commanding? What is it that we need to do? In Proverbs 10:13, it says this, on the lips of the discerning wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of those who lack understanding. See, it's here in our text we're going to learn about the believer's responsibility when in this family, in this congregation, and it's true of every congregation, there's going to be those that lack understanding, those who want to do what's right in their own eyes. There's a time that we may have to set someone aside and say, you, you can't attend here. You can't be a part of this. You're in sin, and you need to deal with this sin. You need to make these relationships right. You, you need to give God the glory and omit that sin. We often use the phrase, there is no salvation apart from repentance. And when a person is not in a repentive lifestyle, when he's not choosing to want to walk with God, then they have to set apart from the church because they misrepresent the body of Christ. They misrepresent God. Living a, a, a sinful lifestyle and people knowing that their Christians or professing Christians misrepresents God. So they need to be set apart or what's called disfellowship. And it's those that are rebellious, those who decide they want to do what's right in their own eyes. It's hard for me. It's hard for you. And so often what we call tough love because we love a person, we cannot let them continue in their sinful lifestyle. If they choose that lifestyle, then we need to commit them over to Satan. Let them suffer the consequences of being away from this fellowship until they come to their senses. Like the story of the prodigal son, the father let him go and only to come to his senses. And I love that story because the father's looking and watching each day. And when he finally sees his son coming, he runs to meet him. And and that should be our response when a person comes to their senses, that we should meet them lovingly and receive them back in. It was in 1 Corinthians. They considered themselves very loving because there was sin in the camp. A young man had his father's wife, and oh, we're so loving. Perhaps it's wrong, but we love them. It's never what the Bible teaches we should do. Paul says, "I've committed him already to Satan. I've turned him over to Satan." That his soul would be saved, and there was disfellowship. They were to step away from them, and. We learn in Second Corinthians that, that he would come to his senses, that he would return back. And what was interesting is they had a hard time receiving him back. He, they treated him almost as his enemy, beginning to look down first love, and then now he's an enemy, and they just didn't get the picture. So Paul here speaks to us, the, the believer's responsibility that we will have to, at some point, set someone aside because they choose not to honor God. So he quickly grabs their attention. He uses a serious language, that is, that we command you. It's alerting the listeners, the brothers, the, the sisters within the body. Their ears probably perk up, they're listening and Concern. What is this command? And he's telling him, refusing to continue and associate with these so-called believers. It's used in another translation. You cannot tolerate a person who's going along in habitual sin. They must be set apart, is what he's saying. You cannot just be a Christian here Sunday morning and live like hell the rest of the life. That's what he's saying. When that time comes, they, they need to be set apart. And this is the believer's responsibility. When a brother sins against you, you're to go to him privately. But if he doesn't listen you're to, to go with someone else and, and speak to him. And if he still doesn't listen, you're to go with the church. And eventually, if this person refuses to, to do what's right, then he must be set apart outside the church. Look at Matthew 18, verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, tell Let him be as a Gentile, a tax collector, so he's disfellowshipped, he's set outside the church. Now that word discipline simply means a removal from the fellowship to those, notice, who are boldly, persistently engaging in divisiveness. Let me read Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye upon those who cause dissension, Hindrances contrary to the teaching which you've learned, and turn away from them. We tend to encourage people and and just condone them continually gossiping and and in their bitterness and anger or their sinful lifestyle. He's saying there's a place you draw a line. When people come to church, yes, they'll they'll come. They're sinners just as you and I, saved by grace. But they should be continually growing in the Lord they should be learning to continually put this off and put that off and I love that when people come in and and they really want to honor God yes they have some struggles but I know and I see when they want to honor God their lives are changing we're not talking about that person we need to go to we're talking about a person who's choosing to live in habitual sin and anger and bitterness and morality, who continues to, to gossip and lie and cheat and steal. A little sin leavens a camp, and all of us can be affected by that. Well, another instance would be in Second John. This chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. Let me read. If anyone goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ and does not have God, that one abides in the teaching. He has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not abide in this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting for the one who gives him a greeting participates in this evil deed. See, there are those that have perverted the teaching. What we follow is the Word of God. The Word of God tells us what's right, what's wrong, and how to get right, and how to stay right. This is our plumb line. Jesus Christ, it centers upon him, his death, his resurrection. That he's changing, and transforming us from the inside out. That we are his workmanship. We're to surrender to him. But there are those within the what's within the professing body of Christ who profess to be Christians, but they deny who Jesus Christ is, deny the work, deny that he's the second person of the Godhead, and they may knock on your door. And they use the name of Jesus Christ. In context of this passage, many believe it's within a, a church that's meeting in a house. They didn't have a building at this point. Don't let someone teach a gospel that's not a gospel at all. That it perverted the teaching of who Jesus Christ is. This person needs to be set apart. He needs to be excommunicated. There's also, there's the scandalous moral behavior, as I mentioned earlier. In 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, notice what it says. I've decided to deliver such one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is always the purpose of disfellowship or excommunication is that people will come to their senses. People will return like the, the prodigal son and return and come back. That they will be shamed or they'll suffer the consequences of their choices in this world, and that they will return. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15 says this, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on the count of an iniquity or any sin in which he's committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Now, the reason I bring this up is because, you know, I, I've heard people through the years, and you've heard people through the years, so and so did such, such, such. Sometimes that's not true. What it's saying here, there needs to be two or three witnesses. You just don't excommunicate, disfellowship somebody because of, of, of hearing one instance. Years ago, I had someone come to me, you know, so and so did this. What are you going to do about it? And they want you just to act upon something, and when it came out later, it really wasn't true. The first thing that you and I need to do is when we see or hear about someone that's in sin, pray. Seek the will of the Lord. I love the scripture, Surely your sin will find you out. God allows your sin to deal with you, to bring it to a surface. Maybe there's a sin, a private sin that you have in your life. If if you don't deal with it, you don't judge yourself, somehow that's going to come up and it's going to be confronted because God doesn't want you to remain in that sin. So he allows it to come to the surface, to deal with you. That you have to admit that, I've sinned, and I've sinned against the Holy God, and I've sinned against you. Now, that doesn't mean that every person needs to come to the church and come before the church and confess their sin, only when it's a sin directly against the church, and it's a serious sin. When Paul says, we command you, in verse 6, there the directions were, To the community, he's not just speaking to one of the elders or the the pastor in that case. No, no, it's to the community. And notice they're not mere suggestions. It's a command. It's the believer's responsibility. Every one of us are to deal with these things. And how effective that would be if you dealt with sin in this area and that area and you go to a brother and you wrap your arms around him. You know, I know you're struggling how can I pray for you? How can I help you? I want to be there to, to, to be with you, help you be accountable, and first help them work through it. But if that person chooses that lifestyle, there comes a point it needs to be dealt with. And that's what he's saying here. It means that each of us are to, to carry the weight, the burden. We're a family. Just as a family would have to deal with things at home. Now, this command is, is a weight, too, and, and he's saying, look, this is the authority like a, a court would, a, a judge would give an order. The apostle is delivered, and it needs to be enforced. Now, again, please understand, it's not, don't turn around, don't look at others, and we're not going to find fault with them, but when that sin reveals itself, and you prayed, Maybe you're the one that needs to go to that brother, to that sister. and love. and minister. Look at verse 14 in our text. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person. Do not associate with them. So he be put to shame. The, the whole goal is to bring this person back. You're set him apart that he would be ashamed. Sadly, today, this, in some ways, doesn't seem as uh, effective. If someone is excommunicated from a church and they just go to another church, another congregation, we've had people that are set apart from, from a church and they come here, and the next thing I know, if I don't know about it, they're doing the same thing here and causing problems and division. In the past, I've seen people come in and they, and they cause division and, and you end up losing the person that's caused the division with and they go. Discipline is chastisement. But it involves correction. The training in righteousness. This is what we're talking about. It's not just, you know, like taking somebody to the spiritual woodshed. Now Go. Discipline, the, the purpose is to bring them to repentance, to be firm yet loving. The goal of the Old, old Testament discipline was well expressed and stated in the, in the purpose of Proverbs. Let me show you in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, Inequity. The Bible here tells us what we need to do. It is our answer for every problem in this life. Written many years ago, but is applicable today. Look on the screen of Deuteronomy 8.5. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his own son. God was disciplining Israel. He's wanting to bring them to their senses. He's wanting to reveal in them their hearts, their sinfulness and their need of him. And some will respond, and sadly more won't. Discipline, again, is for the purpose of restoration. Look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. So then, brethren, stand firm. Hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or mouth, by letter from us. These traditions, are the, 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 the scripture wasn't canonized now, and he's talking about how we are to function and live as the body of Christ. How this congregation and every congregation glorifies God. What is pleasing unto the Lord and what's not pleasing to the Lord. See, Paul's teaching was the inspired teachings. It was inspired word of God. It had been given and prompted by the Holy Spirit and, and he spoke it and wrote it down. In fact, Second Timothy, notice what it says. Chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness so the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. So, This is the scripture, all of it, and when this was written, it was speaking about the Old Testament primarily because there wasn't much of the New Testament written. But it includes all the New Testament. It says all scriptures inspire. It it basically is telling us how we are to live this life. How we are to honor and please God. How we are to deal with one another in this situation and that situation. It's what we need to do, and and in this case, it's to keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. It's, it's, again, habitual. It's ongoing. It's a person who's aware of his situation, but he's going to live in this way and, and still profess to be a Christian. There are things that are, again, he's saying, that are not according to the tradition you receive, and that just basically means the teaching. It's, it's not little things in church, whether we have stained glass or we have this or that. It's the things that pertain to life and godliness. Second Thessalonians 3, 6, and 11. Notice again, it's the brother whose conduct is disorderly. Not according to the tradition. He's irresponsible in his mannerism. In this case, he's no longer working. He's living off of others, taking advantage of others. There were those, they were intently waiting for the Lord. The Lord is coming, coming soon. Now, I believe the Lord is coming soon. Yes, there are more signs that we've seen than ever before prophecy being fulfilled and every generation they were looking anticipation maybe this could be the time and what a wonderful way to live looking for the lord jesus christ to come for you and me to glorify him to be with him it's purifying doctrine for the one that is looking for his coming because you don't want to be doing these things. But some people are very careless, very foolish, very irresponsible. And that's what he's talking about in this case. They just stopped working. They were sponging off, living off, as I mentioned. Despite the prosperity in Thessalonica as a whole, many people were just unemployed shirking their obligation and responsibility. It'd be like you at home. Your, your son or your daughter's 50 years old and they just don't want to work and they just want to sit around and watch TV while the Lord's coming. And Genesis 2.15 says this, and the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it to keep it. See, one of the things we're set on this earth is, is to be responsible. Uh, we're to cultivate, take care of. We're to work within, to manage and oversee his creation. Be responsible for his creation. God's made us that way. It, it's natural for us to, to want to do some kind of work. and The Bible has much to say about laziness. And laziness is a sin. Well, look with me the example. We see it in verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat any, anyone's bread without paying for it. But labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so there would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we did not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. See, Paul points to himself. Silas and and Timothy were models. In fact, every one of us here are to be a model. We're to be living stones. When the world sees us, they should be seeing Christ in us. They should be seeing biblical Christianity. They should be seen holiness and purity, and, and when we're wrong, that we confess that wrong. Paul recognized and discerned the problem in the church that they weren't going to do anything that would cause these people, this congregation, to stumble. They were precious to them. So they worked night and day. Here's what it's to look like. Now, you can teach the Word of God all day long, but people have to see it. It has to be caught. This is how I'm to live. This is what it looks like. And we have to ask that question. What kind of example are we setting for our children, for our family, for our neighbors, for our friends? Is it a godly example? See, the Thessalonians did not simply need to, to follow the oral tradition. No, no. they could imitate the behavior. I know when I got saved, and I went into this church, and the first time I went in to this church, um, I went in late because I wanted to sit in the back. figured everybody would be up in the front. Yasher the greeted me took me down and set me right in the front row, right next to the pastor. The church was overflowing. The next time I came, I came real early, so I wanted to get a a seat. I wanted to sit where I wanted to sit. The usher that had greeted me the week before had walked all the way across the church. He got somebody to take his place, and, and it was before church, and he wanted to greet, it's so good to see you again. It was his example that led me to be an usher later on because I knew that was something I could do. I I knew how he made me feel comfortable in greeting me, and I could do that same thing. Our example is so important. It affects other people. Paul hadn't abandoned his tent-making just because he knew the Lord Jesus Christ was coming. No, he he continued in that idea as tent makers and he worked wherever he went. He believed that the Lord Jesus Christ was coming soon. He had the right to to receive money. But he wanted to be example. We're to occupy until the Lord comes. This is so important. I'm willing to to give my life completely, sacrificially, so that you can come into the kingdom of God. Paul was indeed expecting Christ to come at any moment. But he was serving. He was working. With a realization he might not come. Might not come in his time. I believe the Lord could come any moment, but yet it's very possible he might not come until later. But I want to live my life for the Lord just as you want to live your life for the Lord. And we want to be an example to those around us. Paul had determined that not to be a burden, not to stumble anybody. His life was simply to be an example. To occupy until the lord comes now that word example is interesting it just simply means um, pattern example model uh, the word is uh, typos or and oftentimes we see uh, types in the bibles that are where we talk about from time to time and uh, one of the types the simplest one is is like in noah's ark there was one door and jesus claimed to be the door He's the way, the truth, the life. He's the light unto the world. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he's that sacrificial lamb. That that lamb that was sacrificed was always a picture of him. And you find these examples. They're called foreshadowings. Luke 24, verses 25 through 27 says this. And he said to them, O foolish men, show of the heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and enter into glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the Scriptures. Notice he goes back to again beginning with Moses. That's the Pentateuch and the the prophets. He explains. He's showing right from the Scripture these types. All these things were pointing to him that he must come and die upon the cross. There's Jesus Christ on every page. This is what's called types. Our lives, in a sense, should be a type, example to others. The life of Christ, what it looks like, living sacrificially in this world for Christ, living sacrificially for others. One of the most confusing for some people is is really again in the Old Testament, is the Sabbath. And some people put such great emphasis on a day of the the Sabbath. Hebrews 4, 3 through 6 says this, "For For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, God rested upon the seventh day from all of his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter in, those who formerly the good news preached to them failed to enter in because of disobedience. Well, the picture is teaching. You can focus on this more later is the fact that Jesus Christ is our rest. It's not in a day. It's in a person. He is our Sabbath rest. We're not working for salvation. It's completed. It's done. Now we only surrender. Now we only follow. Circumcision for believers is, was a, a picture of, of union with Christ. In fact, in Colossians 2.11, notice what it says. In him, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. See, it's the cutting away of the flesh, cutting away the flesh in our hearts. This is a work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. In John 12.26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's interesting when we, we think about this passage. Uh, Jesus says, my sheep, I know them by name. They hear my voice. They follow me in Israel, the sheep, or uh, they're what's called fat-tailed sheep. They're there in Israel and some other places. They've now been scattered around the world. But the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. They follow. He doesn't have to drive them like you would cattle, like you might in Australia or New Zealand. They literally follow the shepherd's voice. Jesus would be pictured as that good shepherd. And Jesus is saying, if anyone serves me, he must follow me like a sheep and, and we're likened to a sheep. These are all kinds of types that he's speaking about. First 1 Corinthians 4.16, Paul's saying, therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Paul would say elsewhere, follow me as I follow Christ Jesus. And each one of us should be able to say that. Follow me as I follow Christ Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we're perfect, but that means that we hear his voice. We're following obedience when he shows us something or life that needs to be dealt with. We deal with it. When a command is given, we want to be obedient. And when we fall short of that obedience, we confess that sin. He's faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And we get back on that path and follow him again. Well, look with me in verse 10. For even when we were with you, we used to to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat it's survival the, the person that is to eat and wants to eat he should work and even if a person's out of job he, he should be working if a person's out of work then his job is to work at getting a job providing for his family volunteering looking for open doors and and god will guide him and god will direct him and god will provide for him It's not kindness to encourage laziness. And so often that's what people do. They just help people remain in their sinfulness. It's not kind. It's not loving. You can't make a disciple that doesn't want to be disciple. You don't keep chasing people down. There's a point, he says, that that a line has to be drawn. Well, look with me in verse 11, for we hear that some among you are leading, and living an undisciplined life and doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary, of doing good. In the present tense it's it, it, it's saying we keep hearing <laughs> there were busybodies. They, they keep on being busy. Instead of tending their own business and earning a living they're they're meddling in in the business of others. Don't you dislike that when people are just they wanna just talk about, well oh, did you hear about so and so and don't be a part of it. Don't let it land on your ears. Stop and say, let's pray. Ask them another square you know question. Eventually they're gonna stop. Going to you and they'll go to someone else. Now this verb may be taken in two directions, more common usage. Uh, and certainly it's is suited in this context. It's socially imposing upon other people. It's wasting the time of other people. It's distracting them from their, their daily responsibilities. Have you ever been trying to, to work and do something and they just want to go on and on and on and on and on? May that not be true of you and me. On things that are unimportant, things that you may not even know are true. We need to go about our our business. And we need to be able to set boundaries and lines and say, you know, we can talk later. But if it's about someone else, it it needs to stop. Wanting to get in someone's business and try and, and settle it. I've seen people get in and say, well, I can solve all your problems. There's only one person that can solve your problems. That's Jesus Christ. When you or I decide we want to obey him we want to follow him and one of the ways is quit meddling in other people's business leave them alone commit them to god pray for them but see it's because of this idleness they weren't working idleness that again and again breeds sin look at first timothy 5:13 in the same time They also learn to be idle. They go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips, busybodies, talking about things that are not proper even to to mention. This This is true in every congregation. This is true oftentimes even in our own households in our neighborhoods, but it ought not be within the body of Christ is what he's saying. Look at verse 12. The apostle has a few words for those idlers themselves. He he simply speaks tactfully as to his brothers. He doesn't notice again address them directly. He's speaking to a crowd, you idlers, but uses in personal form such persons. Speaking to the crowd, they know who they are. And you have a choice to listen and obey or be disobedient. It's those that choose a life of continuing disobedience, bringing about divisions. These are the ones he's saying, we have a responsibility to excommunicate them, we to deal with them, to set them aside. So the command is really to the idlers. It's, it's forceful in the sense, get back to work. You can't continue this way. Go work quietly and do your own business. Now that word quiet fashion, it just simply means silent, tranquility, a calmness, a calmness that causes no disturbance. He calls for the very opposite spirit that motivates man who is forever prying into private affairs of other people. It it needs to stop. Well, Paul's speaking again, remember, to a crowd, and not all of them are doing this, but he's saying to the others, do not grow weary in doing good. There are those who are probably frustrated with what they see. They, they don't like what they see. It's hard. It's depressing. They're not working. Why should I work? Why should I have to carry? Why should I have to give? And Paul says, don't get weary of doing good. They're simply tired of supporting those who are lazy, gossips, the meddlers, Maybe they were ready to stop doing good or maybe giving up on all charity. There are people that really do need help and, and we need to do good. We need to help those who really help, but not those who are capable, not those who really just don't want to work. That's what he's saying. He's saying, don't neglect the real need, but don't enable those that are choosing to, to meddle, to be lazy, to be divisive, to support them. Verse 14 talks about the shame. If anyone does not obey the instruction in this letter, take a special note of him, the person. Do not associate with him so they'll be put to shame. If the need here, in this case there is a need, arises for It needs to be dealt with. If it's a trivial offense, it, it, you know, can be dealt privately. But, man, if it's an open offense, it's public, it's deliberate, it's persistent. Disobedience. Especially disobedience to the the apostle's instruction. It needs to be dealt with. And the immediate reason uh, is for excommunication was to dissociate from them. Not hang out with them. Not give them special time. Not be a blessing to them. You want to live like the world? Go live with the world. The church, the church is never to condone or encourage disorderly behavior. You've probably heard them before, but they're so nice, they're so sweet. Well, there can be two sides to a person if they're in sin, it must be dealt with. You cannot say you love a person and let them continue in sin. That's what he's saying. What he's saying is now that if they're going to be set apart, you're disassociate from them. There's to be no social interaction. In any sense? It's what we call tough love but it's for a promotion of the person's welfare that they would come to the census. Look at verse 15. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. As I mentioned earlier, attitude is extremely important. Don't regard him as an enemy. Love him. Pray for him, But that also means there needs to be healthy boundaries because you're admonishing them. You can't give in. You're praying that they will come to their senses. Disciplining a fellow Christian um, can easily uh, degenerate into a community, threatening him as an enemy. And that's certainly what happened in the Corinthian church. Paul had to exhort him, You know, He's come to his senses. Bring him back. Love him. Restore him. That's the goal. Notice what Galatians 6 1 says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such one in the spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourselves so that you too would not be tempted. You know, when we choose, because God is showing us what we need to do when we choose to obey, we need to make sure we have that right attitude. The attitude is always, as I mentioned, restoration, lovingly being firm, praying they would come to their senses. Look with me in verse 16 now. May the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance and the Lord be with you. And I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Paul also wrote in First Corinthians 16:21 "The greeting is my own hand." And then in First Corinthians 11:31 "But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not need to be judged. Paul's signifying, first of all, he's writing the signature. Some say he has bad eyes and he couldn't write in someone else's writing form. We already know someone's writing. But he signs it, to authenticate it, it, that this is the Word of God. This is the inspired Word of God. And I bring this last verse up, 1131, but if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Before we begin disfellowshipping, excommunicating, judging someone it has to start in our own hearts. Why is it? Do I really love them? Do I really want what's best for them? Do I really want what's best for God? Sadly, there's a lot that just are always looking for wrong and they're judging other people. And they will be judged. When this time comes and you have to, I have to, the congregation has to, we need to do it with the right reason. Because we love the Lord Jesus Christ and we want to be obedient to him and we love that person. That's why the judgment has to start with us. Father, thank you for this time, for your word that we so desperately need to hear. Even when we know it, we need to be reminded of it, refreshed about it. Lord, there isn't a time that we don't read the word, that we don't hear you speak to us. Remind us where we're at in our own life. Maybe there's something we need to change today. Something we need to confess something that we need to deal with, repent of. Father, I pray if there's anyone here like that today that you would give them a double portion of grace, that that kindness, may they know that kindness that leads them to repentance. May they find the love and support around them, the people standing in the gap with them, never against them but for them wanting the best for them just as you do too, Father. So thank you again for your word, the hope that we have in you in Jesus' name. Amen.